Thanks for joining us once again for the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast. With this being the month of October, and in fact just a few days before Halloween, it only seemed the right thing to do to discuss Namco's 1988 arcade horror-themed side-scrolling beat-em-up, Splatterhouse. Splatterhouse was developed and published by Namco, with the director of the game being Shihaguru Yokoyama. Shihaguru has some very important footnotes in the golden age of arcade games, as he also had a hand in the creation of 1981's New Rally X as well as Galaga. The designer for the gameplay on Splatterhouse was Akira Yusukura, who also had a hand in 1987's Pac-Mania and 1997's Xevious 3D Pac-G+, which was a PlayStation 1 title that bundled four Xevious titles in a compilation. Two composers were responsible for the perfectly spooky and moody music for the game. Katsuro Tajima, who went on to work on 1994's Pac-Man 2, The New Adventures, 2005's We Love Katamari, and Tekken 5. Yoshinori Kawamoto also made a name for himself in video game scores with 1988's Dragon Spirit, 2001's Mr. Driller, 2005's Star Fox Assault, and 2014's Super Smash Bros. for the Wii U. Now, for a quick taste of the music from the game. Now before I dive into the gameplay of Splatterhouse, I think it best to take a moment and point out some conflicting information on the game's release. 
There are some camps out there on the internet that claim the game was never released in North America. Due to not just the amount of gore in the game, but the religious iconography, which I will get into a bit later. That certainly makes a bit of sense. I mean, Mortal Kombat came out a mere four years later and created a firestorm of controversy with just its violence and blood effects. There are other sources of information, however, that state Splatterhouse was released in North America in 1989, with a release in Europe beginning in January of that year. I do know that Richie Knuckles has an absolutely fantastic custom cabinet, and I'll be sure to include a link to that in the Retroist post. I believe he got that bad boy for his Halloween celebration at Richie Knuckles Arcade Games in Flemington, New Jersey. I do find it rather interesting that I have not found an arcade flyer for the game with English text. So, friends, I'm afraid I truly do not know the answer to this one. If any of you arcade addicts out there remember playing Splatterhouse in the arcades of your youth, make sure to let me know. Now, having presented that mystery, for myself, the first time I was able to play this game was thanks to its TurboGrafx-16 home console port. You might remember this yourself. The game had a warning sticker on the package that said, the horrifying theme of this game may be inappropriate for young children and cowards. Well, my good friend Brian and I were total gamers. Every weekend, and even most days after school, we wound up at one of our houses playing games late into the night. Around this time, which would have been in 1990, arcades had basically given up the ghost. Although, there were still a few hanging in there, like at the local mall, etc. But to be fair, they were a shadow of their former glory. I owned the Nintendo, and Brian had the Sega Master System as well as the Sega Genesis. We basically had all the bases covered on gaming, but we couldn't help but notice in the magazines of the time, like GamePro, or even in some comic books, this game called Splatterhouse. And it was being advertised quite a bit, in print as well as on television. To make matters more difficult, it was an exclusive to the TurboGrafx system, though. Brian had a part-time job, which meant he had far more income than I did. He decided he wanted to add the TurboGrafx-16 console to his collection, but we noticed there didn't really seem to be a lot of games to choose from. At least, not in our neck of the woods. I can still remember the afternoon at school when he decided to pull the trigger. During lunch, he grinned broadly and asked if I wanted to go with him up to Montgomery Wards to pick up the console and hopefully Splatterhouse, which is exactly what we did right after school. Brian even received a free game when he bought the Turbo Graphics. I want to say it was Bonk's Adventure. The clerk there actually paused on selling Brian the game, though. He was just a few weeks shy of turning 18 at that point, and, standing next to him, I had this sinking feeling that this was going to end with us walking out the doors with no splatterhouse. The clerk, a middle-aged man, kept staring at Brian's driver's license. Then finally, with a wink and a little smirk, said, Eh, close enough, and rung up the sale. Quite relieved, we hurried back to Brian's house, and I believe I finally went home around like 1 or 2 in the morning. We just kept playing Splatterhouse. It was an incredibly difficult game, but with its horror theme, we were both just eating it up. I will say that we never actually beat the game, although that didn't stop us from trying over and over again. I apologize about that walk down memory lane. I hope I didn't lose you. <laughs> Splatterhouse tasks one to two players taking alternate turns with controlling Rick, a young parapsychologist who, with his girlfriend Jennifer, decide to investigate the abandoned mansion of the world's most well-known parapsychologist, Dr. West. 
The two happen to encounter a rainstorm after arriving at the cursed place. And as a violent thunderstorm rages, Rick and Jennifer decide to take shelter within the mansion itself. In the darkness of the place, Jennifer screams and everything goes black. Rick wakes later alone in a dungeon where he's visited by what quite honestly looks to be a floating hockey mask. You know, the same kind worn by Friday the 13th's Jason Voorhees. Except, it turns out, this is in fact an item of great power, called the Terror Mask. Which, when it latches onto his face, fills his bruised and battered body with the necessary power to go in search of Jennifer and destroy the hordes of monsters in his path. To succeed in this epic task, the players have a four-way joystick, allowing Rick to walk left and right, crouch, which also serves to pick up the various scattered weapons, and by pressing up, you can make the hero look at his surroundings, like the mirrors in Stage 4. Players also have a jump button, which not only lets Rick leap up in the air, but it is useful for avoiding acid pools or gaping holes in the flooring. The attack button lets Rick punch foes. Or, if he's crouching down, he can lash out with a kick at crawling enemies. Now, if Rick has picked up a weapon, say like the heavy piece of wood, or the meat cleaver, the punch button allows the player to swing for the bleachers. The two melee weapons, besides sounding different, have different visual effects. For example, when you use the heavy piece of wood, it smashes your bow into the background, and you are treated to a grotesque spray of slime or blood depending on the monster type. The meat cleaver will decapitate the enemy, sending their noggins flying while their bodies collapse and disintegrate. Other weapons in the game include a wrench, which is thrown, and of course discarded, so you can only use it the once, and that only appears in Stage 2. A rock, which only appears in Stage 3, and is also a projectile weapon. The spear, which is the last of the projectile weapons, and can be found on Stage 4. There's also a shotgun, a very powerful weapon only found on the third stage that can take out a full row of enemies, but you only have eight shots. Last, but not least, is the Mighty Axe, which is only available near the end of the fourth stage, and is quite necessary to beat the boss at the end of that level. The jump and attack buttons can also be used together, so that Rick can leap up and kick a flying enemy, or a monster in the face. Rick's greatest move, though, is his sliding kick. The player must use the jump button and then pull the joystick diagonally down to the right or left in the direction desired. And just before they hit the ground, they must then hit the attack button. It's harder to pull off than it might sound. If it works properly, this causes Rick to literally slide across the floor or ground, dispatching numerous enemies in his way. But players must still be careful not to touch those acid pools or spikes, etc. Okay, this is the part where I talk about the various foes a player must overcome in the game. Here's the thing, there are a LOT of types of enemies and dangers in Splatterhouse, so I will attempt to keep this concise and short as possible. On the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth stages, the majority of monsters Rick will come up against are the Dead Men, basically zombies. The Red-Eyed Dead Men take one punch to defeat and earn the player 100 points. The green-eyed versions take two punches, but are worth 200 points. I'd like to add that when dispatching the green-eyed versions on the third stage, their bodies won't disintegrate after being defeated. Instead, they just collapse, allowing evil dogs to appear and feast on those remains until Rick kicks them away. Ugh. Then we have the Shabito, or 
corpse person. I'm probably horribly butchering these names, I apologize. These enemies are chained, hung by their wrists, or even continuously impaled by spikes. These foes are actually part of the background on the first and second stages. What they do is vomit up acid pools, forcing the player to either wait until the threat soaks into the ground or attempt to jump over them. A player cannot attack these particular foes. The Babito is a bat that flies across the screen, generally at various heights. They will make an appearance on the first and fourth stages. It only takes one hit to defeat them, and they are worth 300 points each. Then there are the top heavies, a little like the dead men, except they have a bulbous head. Players encounter them on the first, second, and fifth stages. Three punches or kicks are needed to destroy their bodies, but this frees their heads, which fly towards Rick. One hit is all that is needed to take these noggins out. A player will get 500 points for the body and 300 points for dispatching the head. If you have the heavy piece of wood or meat cleaver, you can defeat these foes with a single hit each. In stages two and three, you will encounter the hanging dead sagging and putrid corpses that will plummet from the ceiling on stage two, and players must avoid touching them or be damaged. Two punches will take them out and get you 300 points. In the third stages, you will find they developed a new trick. They try spitting goo at you. Like the top heavies, a single strike from the heavy piece of wood or cleaver will kill them. The same goes for using the shotgun too. The water dead are, well, aquatic shambling zombies. They will make an appearance on stages two, three, and five, rising up from the waters to challenge Rick. One hit is all that is necessary to slay them and will award players 200 points. Stage three, you will encounter floating mines or pods. They're floating spiky obstacles that must be leapt over. If Rick comes in contact with one of them or any foe, he is damaged and loses one of his four life hearts, which can be found at the bottom of the screen and of course lets the player track how much health they have left. I mentioned the evil dogs just a second ago. They will show up on stages 3 and 5. Two hits are what it takes to destroy them, and for dispatching one, you earn 300 points. On both stages 3 and 4, players will meet up with the Nobu, which are really, really disturbing. They are crawling sacks of flesh with faces. They will attempt to spit acidic goo at Rick as they crawl across the floor or ground and it takes two kicks, not punches. It must be kicks to dispatch them, which will earn you 300 points. An additional enemy on the third stage are the Goku Rachu, birds which attempt to fly into the player. You just need one hit to destroy them, and it gets you 300 points. A big threat to worry about on stage three is the monstrous hands. These green webbed hands will burst out from underneath the wooden bridge you have to cross. They can't be hurt and must be avoided. If they grab Rick, they will drag him into the sewers. This is particularly bad if a player has, say, the shotgun in their possession, as they will then lose it, which will make the boss battle of Stage 3 a bit more difficult. On Stage 4, Rick will have to jump over spinning blades set in the floor at various points. They cannot be damaged, just avoided. Also on that fourth stage are mirror versions of Rick. They literally burst from behind mirrors. They have all the same moves as Rick, which of course makes them pretty dangerous. Three hits is what it takes to defeat them and earn the player a thousand points each. Beginning on the fifth stage, the players will have to beware crawling hands, who attempt to leap up upon Rick and damage him. Thankfully, it only takes one hit to destroy them, and you do get 200 points. 
It has been said that Akira Yusukura was actually inspired by Ash's evil hand from the Evil Dead 2. It's pretty hard not to see the similarities. Another threat to be found in the fifth stage are female specters, sometimes called jokers, that float in the air and drop skulls on the player. Rick has to jump up and kick them. Thankfully, players need just one hit. And with a scream of anguish, they will disappear, earning you 500 points. Also on stage 5, you will encounter picture ghosts. These are faces on the various paintings scattered about the level. They will detach from the walls and chase after Rick. Just one hit is needed, and it earns you 300 points. Then, there's the Master of the Dead, or Necromancer. This sort of scarecrow-looking enemy flies through the air, resurrecting enemies. It will take a total of 10 hits for the player to defeat this enemy. To make matters more difficult, when you strike it, it becomes incorporeal for a second or two, generally sliding past Rick before becoming solid again. If you do defeat it, you will get 500 points, but you have to hurry, because if you wait too long, it will just fly upwards and away. The dead it brings back to life require two hits each to put back down, and will get you 100 points for each one defeated. Stage 6 finds the player having to contend with bubble-like Oba. These monsters will form on the floors and ceilings. If the player doesn't dispatch them quick enough, these bubbles will pop and hopping creatures will emerge and start heading for Rick. If a player destroys them while still in the bubbles, it is easier and gets you 200 points each. But once they are freed, they are worth 300 points. On the seventh and final stage, you will encounter two types of foes. Both are invulnerable and must be avoided at all costs. The fire logs that roll towards the player must be jumped over. And the burning dead which appear, jump up and the player must time it so they pass underneath. Whew, I told you there's a ton of enemies to talk about in this game. Now, let me get to the stage bosses. Stage 1 finds the players having to contend with leaping, ravenous mutant worms, or body eaters. They only need one hit, though, to be destroyed, and earn the player 300 points each. The difficulty comes in the fact that they attack in a mob. They are also found in two more areas later in the game, in the 4th and 5th stages. Stage 2's boss is rather interesting, as it's a poltergeist attack. At the beginning of the boss battle, candles, whiskey bottles, and even soda cans fall from the ceiling at the start of the boss area. They are not worth any points, however, but will damage Rick if they make contact. A player can knock him out of the way with just a single hit. Then, the players must contend with a chair that bounces and twists around in the room. Five hits are needed to reduce it to kindling, getting you a whopping 2,000 points. You will also encounter these chairs again in Stage 5, but they are only worth 300 points each on that level. The victory over the furniture causes knives to start to fly through the air, beginning with just one, then two decide to gang up on Rick. They'll raise up in the air, then fly towards the players diagonally. Three hits are needed to stop their attack, but will get you 1,000 points each. Finally, on stage two, players will have to face off against a painting with a staring eye upon it. It takes eight hits to chase off the poltergeist haunting it. With each strike, the painting kind of ricochets across the edges of the screen, so you have to really be on your guard. Defeating this second boss gets you 3,000 points. 
but you have to be careful. This is a good reason why Splatterhouse is such a difficult game. On defeating the second boss, you have a couple of seconds to move Rick all the way to the right or left side of the screen. Why? Because if you don't, you will be crushed by a falling chandelier. If this occurs, you get to fight the entire boss battle over again. Stage 3's boss is known as the Biggie Man, which I've always assumed was supposed to be the Boogeyman. This is a dual chainsaw wielding maniac with a cloth sack covering his head. You know, kind of like Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th Part 2. It takes 20 hits to bring the Biggie Man low, a feat made easier if you happen to have a shotgun. It's possible to make sure you have two shotguns for this battle, as when Rick picks up a new weapon, he throws the older one a little ways in front of him, which he can pick up again. With a bit of rinse and repeat of this action, you will end up with the two shotguns, and need only to shoot the Biggie Man 10 times, which earns you 3,000 points. Stage 4's boss is none other than an inverted cross, which flies around and is protected by floating heads known as nightmares that will periodically shoot out at the player before being replaced. Killing each head will get you 500 points. Thankfully, they need just one hit. The cross itself, though, requires six hits. Remember, you'll need that axe, but it will net you 5,000 points. On stage five, well, Rick is able to finally locate his girlfriend, Jennifer. She lays motionless on a couch, surrounded by enemies. Rick's appearance drives them away. The reunion is bittersweet, though, as Jennifer becomes a horrible monster before his eyes, crying out before her body changes, and she attempts to kill her former love. I'm done. The monster that Jennifer becomes begins to leap around the room. When it lands, it will stretch a hand out, its fingernails extending, jabbing forward quite a ways. Taking six hits, Jennifer shakes off the transformation, but only for a second, pleading to Rick to not hurt her, before transforming again. Although the jump attacks this time do not cover as much ground, you will have to repeat this two more times before you defeat the monster. And Jennifer passes away, thanking Rick before she dies, and granting the player 6,000 points. Now you might think that this is the end of the game, but Rick realizes it is the West Mansion itself that is the cause of all the evil monsters. The mansion is truly alive, so he plunges deeper into the bowels of the beast, where he encounters the fleshy thing that is the boss of Stage 6, known as Mother, which is spitting out Opus. And it takes 30 hits to destroy this thing. Any Obas on the screen at the time of Mother's Death will net you the respective point values. 200 if it's in the bubble, or 300 if out. But like the second stage boss fight, there's another danger. The Obas will explode once Mother is defeated. And if Rick is in the middle of that explosion, he can be killed if his health is too low. Now, unlike if the player is struck down by the chandelier, if you are taken out by these explosions, you will be forced to play the entire stage over from the beginning. And that is harsh. Finally, at the end of stage seven, you encounter the giant decayed head of Dr. West, also known as the Hell Chaos. 
erupting from the ground and tossing rocks into the air, which, as they fall, if they strike Rick, they will naturally take one of his hearts. The player must strike Dr. West's gruesome noggin ten times, which causes it to retreat back under the ground. Dr. West will also raise his decayed hands up periodically in an attempt to grab Rick. These can't be damaged and obviously must be avoided. A player will need to drive Dr. West's head back underground a total of five times, which means you've struck it 50 times. Your reward, besides getting your revenge on the architecture of your nightmares, is 100,000 points. You also get to witness Dr. West's tortured soul, and quite possibly the souls of those that have perished at the mansion, being freed. The game ends with Rick walking away from the destroyed remains of Dr. West's mansion. The terror mask explodes into tiny pieces as the credits roll. But after that last credit, we see the pieces reform and it laughs and laughs. Followed by the word end. That was a lot of ground to cover, but Splatterhouse is a bit different than the games I've talked about before. While playing the game, I doubt that many people were worried about the score. They're just trying to make it through to beat Dr. West. However, on the Twin Galaxies website, it is Rudy J. Freddy who has the top spot with 708,000 points, which was verified on August 22nd of 2016. And now, these messages. So, you want to know the story of Splatterhouse, the new horror video game for TurboGrafx-16? They say he stalks the old haunted mansion. They say he's looking for his girlfriend. They say his only weapon against the maggot-eating ghouls who took her is a two-by-four. And you say you want to play this game? Splatterhouse. Only for the TurboGrafx-16 system from NEC. It's coming soon to a television set near you. An incredibly advanced video game system. Are you ready for these amazing graphics and vibrant colors? Can you handle the speed and the power? How about the capacity for stereo sound and for five players? You decide before September because it's coming. TurboGrafx-16, the higher energy video game system. Games sold separately. Now I need to add that as hard as Splatterhouse might sound, it can be even more difficult. <laughs> if the arcade game feels like you aren't moving ahead quickly enough, a purple cloud will appear from the left-hand side of the screen and seek out Rick. If it comes in contact, it will take a heart, so the player is forced to quickly move forward. If the battles with the bosses at the end of the stages are taking too long, a blue orb will show up. This will come from the right-hand side of the screen. Of course, if it touches Rick, it will damage him as well. Except, this one can sort of be avoided. If you crouch down, you can avoid making contact. Except now, you have to attempt to defeat a boss by merely kicking at it. Which, as you can imagine, is not an easy way to defeat them. If you do manage to defeat a boss this way, the orb will immediately disappear. 
Splatterhouse is most definitely a horror game. The stages themselves are a gruesome sight. Whether that be the final stages, where you are traveling through the breathing organs of the West Mansion, or even on the first stage, where you see trapped prisoners behind bars in various stages of harm. People cut in half will reach feebly to you for help, with gore and viscera spread around them. I guess what I'm saying is that this is a game that is certainly not intended for small children. Teenagers and such, heck, they probably see worse every week on the newest episode of The Walking Dead. Now you already know Splatterhouse was ported to the TurboGrafx-16. It had a few changes, however. For one thing, the terror mask is now red. This was done in an attempt to avoid North American audiences thinking that they're playing Jason Voorhees, of course. And to avoid a potential lawsuit, I'm sure. All crosses in the background and the inverted cross on stage 4 have been removed. That boss battle for the TurboGrafx version, the cross was replaced with a head. Splatterhouse, the TurboGrafx version, was made available on the Wii Virtual Console back in 2007. That was for America and Europe. In 2009, only in Japan, the Wii Virtual Console offered the arcade version. In 1988, there was a handheld LCD Splatterhouse game made. This isn't considered a port as it has its own gameplay. It's an original game. Splatterhouse did receive a sequel on the Sega Genesis in America on August 3rd, 1992. Then, Splatterhouse 3 debuted in America once again on the Genesis on March 19th, 1993. It was in 2010 the game received a remake that was made available for the Xbox 360, PlayStation 3, and iPhone. By the way, it featured the three earlier titles as unlockables. Naturally, we do not have the arcade game at the Arcadia Retrocade, but we do have the Genesis games in our collection. And I think that about wraps up our podcast for this go-around. However, I need to add something. Friends, I'll be taking a hiatus from not just the Diary podcast, but Saturday Frights as well for the month of November. I do feel bad about this, but in all honesty, it's for my health. In total, every month, whether I edit or create the podcast entirely, I work on 10 podcasts. The month of October at my day job, which some of you might know is an upscale hotel, is the busiest time of the year. Almost too busy to be quite honest. Add to that the podcast work, the three to four daily Facebook page posts for both the Diary and Saturday Frights, plus my articles on the Retroist, you can see where I might feel a little stretched thin. I appreciate the support for all the podcasts. I truly do. But I just need to rest a little. I think all of you arcade addicts will understand this. Speaking of the Diary Facebook page, I hope you will stop by there daily and share your own arcade memories and enjoy in the celebration of the, cl- of the classic arcade and home video games. Our ending theme, which is entitled River Raid, was composed by the extremely talented Tony Longworth. You can listen to even more of his music on SoundCloud and on his official site, which you can reach at www.tonylongworth.com. Friends, if you have any feedback for the show or perhaps a suggestion for a game to cover, you can reach me at vicsage at retroist.com. Diary of an Arcade Employee is, of course, available on iTunes. And if you like the show, I would really appreciate it if you could jump over there and give us a rating. It certainly helps to get the word out to new listeners. 
For further information about the Arcadia Retrocade, please make sure to follow them over on their Facebook page. I will be sure to provide a link on the Retro's post. Of course, I want to give a huge thanks to the Retroist. When you need your daily retro fix, why not visit the Retroist site at www.retroist.com. Have a token on me as we listen to a clip for the game I will discuss in December. This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye, and we hope to see you next time.